The next case was presented by Dr. Atif Hussain. My patient is a 65-year-old woman whom I saw for the first time in 2001 after she had right shoulder pain for one year, treated with non-steroidals, and finally somebody did a chest X-ray on her, and she was found to have a right upper lobe mass 4 by 5 centimeter. At that time, she had scans, and she was found to have another tiny spot in the left lung and a mass that we believed it's in the codate lobe of the liver. The mass in the right upper lobe on the CAT scan invaded actually the third and fourth ribs anteriorly, and it extended down to the right hilum, and it went and invaded almost T1. The patient MRI of the brain was negative. The biopsy showed poorly differentiated adenocarcinoma. It was CK7 positive, CK20 negative, TTF1 positive, ER negative, PR negative, bilateral mammogram negative, and her ovaries, there is nothing suspicious. As I said, the MRI of the brain was negative. At that time, the patient really was in severe pain. She took some medication, non-steroidal and some narcotics, and her pain improved. And then I started her on chemotherapy at that time. She was started in 2001 on carboplatin and Taxol every three weeks. She did well, her pain improved, but because she wouldn't take narcotics, she continued to have pain. I repeated her scans after three cycles since she was clearly doing better. And I did a PET CT. She had a PET as a baseline. And the PET CT showed a 40 to 50% reduction in the mass in the right upper lobe. Almost the right hilar involvement disappeared. The uptake in the left lung on the PET scan disappeared. The codate lobe, the intensity improved markedly, but it was still there. Because she was still in pain and she wouldn't really take narcotics because of the way they made her feel, I consulted radiation therapy at that time, really for palliation. We started on radiation, wanted to shift her to weekly chemotherapy. She really didn't want to come every week. I kept her on every three weeks because she responded very well. The same doses actually, watching her closely, and she took the radiation without any interruptions. She took two additional cycles of chemotherapy while on radiation for a total of five, and then I gave her the sixth because I believed she had a lot of cancer, and I wanted to give her six rather than four. After that, I repeated her scans, and actually the uptake on the PET scan in the codate lobe, it disappeared, nothing in the left lung. There was still some uptake in the right upper lobe, which is understandable. We didn't know whether it's radiation or residual tumor. And for a period of four years, she has been doing very well. Four years? Four years? uh, Yes, until actually two and a half months ago. Jeez, what do you need us for? (laughs) (laughs) You see, that's why I mentioned to you about the mammogram and ERPR so that you don't tell me you treated breast cancer. I say. (laughs) No, I treated non-small cell lung cancer. We would do a PET on her sometimes, you see, to whatever she really wants. Unfortunately, she had a bad family situation during this treatment that made her a little bit depressed, but she has a very supportive family and she did very well, still with some pain because she wouldn't take even Darvocet. She did well until around two and a half months ago when she was admitted to another hospital because of some shortness of breath and she was found to have pneumonia in the left lower lobe, but she had a mess, a large mess around four by five centimeter also in the liver in the anterior aspect of the right lobe of the liver, a couple of small ones in the left lobe. The lungs, the right upper lobe, stayed sort of the same. They treated her with antibiotics, and then they sent her to me. 
at that time, full staging didn't reveal really anything except definitely something in the liver. We biopsied the liver, and it's exactly the same. Adenocarcinoma, poorly differentiated. CK7 positive, 20. Yeah. Yes, we did that. We didn't do ERPR this time, but it looked the same. And I talked to her about treatment. Can you talk a little bit more about the woman? What's it been like for her these last four years? And what's her quality of life been like? What was going on with her during this whole time? Yeah, she has been a housewife. She hasn't really worked in a long time. She has two daughters. One of them is actually a nurse in Boston. The other 25-year-old always came with her. I remember the first time I saw her, she had at least 10 family members. I mean, we didn't even have a room in the clinic to seat them all together. And I want probably an hour and a half over all the CAT scans. They were very, very involved. And they would always come with her and encourage her. And unfortunately, during the time when I did the first CT on her after the third cycle of Taxol Carbo, her 25-year-old daughter was accompanying her to the radiology department. And she was sitting and all of a sudden she fell on the floor. People tried resuscitating her. And unfortunately, she died the next day with a bleeding aneurysm in the brain. Oh, God. Beautiful 25-year-old. I mean, that shocked her, of course. It shocked all of us. Couldn't really see the patient without her daughter with her. And she almost didn't want the treatment because she said, why should I even live now? But with her other daughter from Boston came and stayed with her for like three months to help her with the tragedy. And we supported her with the psychologist, a psychiatrist, and the social worker. She actually agreed to continue. But I mean, every time I would see her and look at her and tell her about scans, she would cry. It's like, so what? So what? But it took her really until probably the last two years. The first two years, I don't think she had a great quality of life because of the tragedy. But the last two years, actually, she came to be realistic about it and live her life. She has a wonderful husband. They travel a lot and they do a lot of social events. She smoked, not really a lot. She has around 20 pack year history, but she hasn't smoked in the last 10, 12 years at least. I always hate it when you go to conferences, they put up a slide, X year old, 2.2 centimeter. Every one of these patients has a different life story that that's really oncology practice. And I think in this situation, it's a particularly dramatic example. Tom, how would you think through treatment at this point with these liver mets? And what do you think about this story, basically, in terms of what happened here? I share your interpretation. I think that this is definitely lung cancer, CK7 positive, 20 negative, TTF1 positive, lung mass, clinical settings right. I agree. I don't worry about this being an occult breast cancer or an occult tumor from someplace else. I think it was lung cancer. I think you had a very good response, and I think it's been a remarkable four years for her. So now you're stuck with what do we do with someone who clearly has progressive disease, who clearly had chemotherapy-sensitive disease initially and had a beautiful outcome. I would give her a couple of choices. I think one thing you can say to her is, listen, in the interim, over these past four years, one of the drugs that's become available now is Avastin. I don't think you'd be crazy if you went back to the well and gave her Carbo, Avastin, and either Taxotere or Gem. So you could go Carbo, Gem, Avastin, or Carbo, Taxotere, Avastin, perfectly reasonable. In fact, you wouldn't even be wrong if you went carbotaxol Avastin, given the fact that she had a four-year disease-free interval. So that would be option number one, would be using Avastin-based regimen. Option two is you could say, okay, I'll do it according to treatment guidelines and pick a single agent for my quote-unquote second-line therapy. If that's the case, you could pick either a Limta or Dosataxel. 
I would probably pick docetaxel in this setting because she had a taxi and had such a beautiful response. So I might go with docetaxel as my next choice. Without a vestin or with? In that setting, I don't think we have a lot of evidence. You'd be going based on Allen's phase two from ASCO this year. In my practice, I probably would go without Avastin in that setting. So those would be the two things I would probably think about presenting to her. What do you think you'd most likely to end up doing? I think I'd most likely give her carboplatin, taxol, or taxotere with Avastin. Alan? This is a great story. I'm not a big fan of repeating chemotherapy, but... Except in your five-year survival. Right. <laughs> and in my series, my series that uh, I believe I published in the uh, Journal of Irreproducible Results, <laughs> that you could do, again, paclitaxel, carboplatin, and Avastin, or docetaxel, olympta. If you did the second line without doing the doublet therapy and just went with the traditional second line, I would add Avastin. Big surprise. I mean, it was a study that participated. You've got to believe the results that you present. You'd have to scan her brain and make sure she has no metastatic disease. But I think this is one where, of any, I think just trying the paclitaxel carbo and Avastin might be interesting trying the same chemo. But like I said, I'm not a big fan of reintroducing the same chemotherapy. Howard? Yeah, two things. First, how were the metastases verified at the onset? And second, the daughter having the intracranial hemorrhage, does that give you any concern about using Avastin in the patient? We'd be doing an MRI beforehand anyway. The MRI, that wouldn't show you an aneurysm if it's there. The daughter died with a subarachnoid hemorrhage, I think. Is that correct? Uh, bleeding aneurysm, yes. Yeah, so the MRI wouldn't show you the yeah, aneurysm. That's a good question. And I guess if you're overly nervous and want to do an MRI angiogram, you could. This is uncharted territory. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, I don't know what the penetration is in terms of aneurysms. Mom's already 65, so... But do we know that you can't give a Vastin with people with AAAs, for example? No, we don't know that at all. Yeah. Would you do it? With a negative MRI, I'd have no problem. How about triple A's? Yeah, I think I would as well. The issue of bleeding, as best we know right now, wasn't that it destroyed blood vessels in the absence of tumor. It was the tumor that was bleeding, as best we know so far. And we're going to ask you to update us a little bit on the 4599 data that was presented at ASCO in a couple of minutes. But Dr. Weinstein, you had a question? Yeah, when we use the Vastin in colon cases, there's an incidence of bleeding in areas that are not related to the cancer, such as peptic ulcers. And they have nothing to do with the anastomosis. So you have more experience with this than I do, I'm sure. But I wouldn't categorically say that non-tumor vessels don't bleed. But remember, what you've been describing is not necessarily destruction of the tumor. I mean, a peptic ulcer is erosion into the stomach's got a hole in it. These are anatomically abnormal areas. And I think that that may be an area of a vastin-induced bleeding. And so that's why I wouldn't say categorically that non-cancer vessels don't bleed because they may still be anatomically abnormal. Helen? But what you described was a peptic ulcer, not an abnormal vessel. Well, it's inflamed. The whole area may be inflamed. Again, I don't know that that's actually vasculature or not, and I don't have the answer to the actual yeah, question. <laughs> I'll be the first one to say that, so I'll leave it at that. I'm going to ask for a follow-up on the case, but first, question from Dr. No, I was going to say, how about epistaxis? You'd presume that that would be normal blood vessels, and very often do you see minor epistaxis see, more with, with For it. whatever reason, more with breast than you do with lung isn't overly common. Don't know what that necessarily means. And you're right, those small vessels, the point I was trying to make is we haven't, to the best of my knowledge, had large, well-established vessels that blew up on us that I'm aware of. Let's get some follow-up on the case. Yes, just to answer Howard, 
in 2001, we did not biopsy neither the left lung nor the caudate lobe. There was definitely clearly something in the caudate lobe on the CAT scan and the positive uptake on the PET scan in both, but we did not biopsy. And it got better with treatment. Oh, absolutely. It definitely did, but we didn't biopsy it. When I saw her, I went over four years, chemo, sensitive tumor. We did the MRI of the brain and it was negative. We talked about the bleeding, but I thought, you know, like actually Alan said, look, you have no cancer. I thought the bleeding usually is associated with abnormal microvasculature because of the tumor. And I talked to her about the treatment and we ended up giving her carboplatin, taxotere and avastin. She received three cycles and we repeated the CAT scan around four weeks ago. And her tumor is at least 50%, maybe even 55% smaller in the right lobe of the liver. There is still one lesion in the left. I gave her this last Monday the fourth cycle of chemotherapy, the same doses with Avastin. And the plan is to give her a total of six, not four, because she responded. And I will repeat the scan after the six. No one is going to argue with a single thing you've done for right. this patient. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> What's been going on with this woman personally as this second response has been occurring? I am certain she would not have accepted to continue the chemotherapy three, four weeks ago if I did not show her on the computer that her tumor has responded. She was giving me one more chance at this. And actually, I was so glad that she responded very well. And she had to see it like always she does. She has been tolerating the treatment. She is having more difficulty than the first time. It's just her psyche is different. I mean, she still remembers every time she comes to our hospital. Although I actually treat her now in another hospital of our healthcare system so that she really doesn't have this experience coming through the door of the hospital. Because she wouldn't. Have to go to the same radiology suite would be tough. Yeah, exactly. The same registration, the same people. She's being treated now in another hospital to bypass that. The question is, what do you do after six cycles of treatment, still residual disease? I'd wait five more years and then pick your next, <laughs> <laughs> your next treatment. Continue the Avastin. Continue the Avastin. What if there is still one lesion in the liver? Do you think some local therapy, radiofrequency no. ablation? No. No, but I would say one thing. That She's I, got a PR. I can get much better yeah. than that. But what I might do is, her. as you watch her, if, let's say, a year from now, the lung is stable and you've got a growing liver lesion, I would think about RFA in that At setting. At that time. I'd think yes, about it, too, absolutely. and wouldn't do it. What length of time, Alan, have patients been treated with Avastin alone after getting chemotherapy? How far out are they? Do you have patients beyond a year? Yes, we actually just looked at the database. I think we have four to six patients that may have gone beyond three years, actually, on the investment, the ECOC 4599 database. We're not exactly clear on the exact numbers. We're actually going back to look because somebody else had asked a question. I've had a patient that uh, at least one, maybe two, that have gone more than a year and a half, and there are many that went on. The median number of cycles was seven on the bevacizumab arm versus five. So that meant five cycles of chemo and bevacizumab. On the bevacizumab arm was six cycles of chemo and bev plus the one of bev, so it was a little bit longer. And then we went back and looked at the data on just the bevacizumab alone for maintenance. The paper was submitted to New England Journal for review, and actually it's been tentatively accepted. And some of the reviewers had asked the questions, what's the toxicity of bevacizumab, which is a good thought, and really didn't seem to be much more than the proteinuria and hypertension are the principal things. I want to ask Tom if he would comment on where we are, and then Alan after that, on predictors of response. It's interesting. If we could predict that this patient would have had such a great response to carbotaxol, we'd be a whole lot farther ahead. 
bevacizumab, can we separate out the people who go out to a year and a half, as you were describing, Alan, from the people who progress much earlier? Tom, where are we in terms of trying to understand this? I don't think we have any great predictors of response. There have been a number of people who've looked at DNA repair enzymes. And at ASCO this year, there was some very interesting work looking at ERCC1 and trying to predict patients who had low levels of ERCC1, meaning that they had low levels of enzymes that are important in DNA repair, seem to do better with adjuvant platinum-based regimens. And there's also some evidence that in metastatic disease that having lower levels of the ability to repair DNA damage seems to be better in terms of responding to treatment. However, paradoxically, it seems to be worse in and of itself in terms of outcome from the tumor, which I don't think that helps you much with this patient. So I think there's a lot of work on the DNA repair enzyme avenue, both ERCC1, XRCC1. There are a number of people who are trying to look at gene expression profiling in metastatic disease to try to predict. But I think unlike with the EGFR inhibitors where we have a number of candidate profiles, I think in response to general chemotherapy, I haven't been convinced that there's anything that I think is ready for us to start using in clinic in this setting. Alan, people kind of are frustrated in breast, lung, and colon in terms of the lack of bevacizumab predictors. What was looked at in the 4599 study, and is there anything out there that you think might be promising? We looked at several serum proteins that included VEGF, E-selectin, beta-FGF, and ICAM. We looked at both baseline, and then with some of them, we were able to look at them after treatment. We drew blood after the second cycle of chemotherapy. It's very early, and so at this point, there's no way of distinguishing. The one issue, and Sam had a great point about if he had done the bevacizumab beginning five years, then it would be great, etc. On the other hand, if it was a colon or breast patient, at what point would you have stopped the chemotherapy? Because it's common in those diseases to keep the chemotherapy be going and you'd say, hey, it's the chemotherapy. So for the rare patient that continues to go, maybe someone who does go beyond a year and a half or two, maybe it would be time to think about stopping. I mean, we don't have too many of those. I wish we had more. It's a good point. But I think the one thing that I've mentioned in other venues is something that's kind of interesting about bevacizumab and anti-angiogenesis in general. When it was first discussed back in the late 90s or around 2000, whenever Dr. Folkman had his work with the four mice, the thought was that this concept of therapy could not possibly work in pre-established tumors. It could only work in the micrometastatic setting, preventing the neovasculature and turning the disease into a chronic illness. Remember, that was the hope. Well, then, as often happens in oncology, what you find in the laboratory doesn't translate to the clinic very well. And lo and behold, we find out that in all the studies that have chemo and bevacizumab, the response rates are much higher with the bevacizumab. And then there became subsequent work with Cash Jane, George Ouellette, that suggested that by pruning the neovasculature within the tumor cells, you get better drug delivery and therefore better response rates. And we forgot about the other aspect of antiangiogenesis, the potentially maintenance aspect of the micrometastatic disease. So my view at this point is that I believe that both concepts are valid. And so I think there's a reason to give with chemo and a reason for the maintenance. It would be nice if a randomized study would be done that maybe had two or three arms to sort of see whether you need the maintenance or not. But until such time, I think you're left with the phase three data as it is. We'll get that answer in ovarian cancer. Aren't they doing a large trial in ovarian cancer? I think you're right. Maintenance or no maintenance? I think you're right. But this concept of prolonged targeted therapy is not unknown. I'm thinking about a couple people I interviewed from Chuck Vogel's breast cancer practice recently who were on the original Herceptin trial, a metastatic disease, still on Herceptin, eight years, 10 years later. Everyday experience, an oral agent with a lot less toxicity is keeping a patient on hormone therapy for breast cancer for years. 
aromatase inhibitors, metastatic disease, Obviously, there are other toxicity and cost issues here. Dr. Ng. I just have a quick clinical question for Alan, because I'm in a dilemma in my own practice about a particular patient. Let's just say a patient had a great response to taxocarbovastin, and you maintained them on a vastin maintenance for more than six months, close to a year. And when they do progress, do you go back to the well? Do you recycle the drugs, or do you start them brand new again? and change to a totally different regimen. Where do you keep the Avastin going and add in right. Erlotinib? So they're on, currently they're on Avastin alone. Right. And now progressing. Right. Do so, you go back to Taxocarbo and Avastin, or do you change to a second-line regimen? So I would stop therapy and go on to second-line therapy. It's been how long since the chemotherapy? More than six months. Again, it'd be very reasonable to consider doing the taxocarboplatin alone. I personally wouldn't do it with the Avastin. I think they've established the fact that something's growing even while on Avastin alone. I know the concepts are that it's less likely to develop resistance, the blood vessels, and that there may always be a role for an antiangiogenic agent in there and just keep that going and change the chemotherapy. It's reasonable. It's not yet proven. ECOG, we are going to do that study. So we're going to do taxocarboavastin until progression, and then we're going to switch. At this point, the study has Olympta. It could have Tarceva, but it has Olympta, and then with or without Avastin continuing to see whether or not we can answer that question, which the breast cancer folks and Herceptin have just sort of continued to assume to see answers. They actually tried to get an answer, and they couldn't accrue anybody into the trial. We're at a point where I think we can with the Avastin. So the specific answer to your question is, it would be very reasonable if you wanted to retry the Taxocarbol. I personally would stop and move on to something new. Second opinion from Tom on this case. I would stop and go on something new as well. This was an unusual circumstance right. in this setting with Dr. Hussain's patient. So, Tom, agree, disagree, or in between? In general, right now in the first-line setting, if you have a patient who would have met the 4599 entry criteria, the standard of care is chemo plus bevacizumab. That's part one. Agree. And the bevacizumab should be continued until disease progression. Agree. Can you talk about why you feel that way? I just think that's the way that Alan designed the study, and that if you're going to practice evidence-based medicine, and I think estimates are that 25% of our decisions in medicine are based on evidence, 75% aren't. But if you want those 25% to be evidence-based, I would argue that I want to treat my patients according to the way that they were designed to be treated on 4599 until we have evidence that proves otherwise. I also like the idea of continuing Avastin after finishing the chemotherapy because of Alan's point about how there may be micrometastatic disease or small volume disease that you may be influencing in that setting. So until we have evidence that proves otherwise, I would continue the Avastin. In terms of part A of that question, whether it is a standard of care in general, the way patients should be treated, when did you make that decision? When did you change your non-protocol practice? I changed my non-protocol practice on, was it March 10th, Alan? Oh, when the, the, the newspaper, the press yeah, release, the press I think it was April something. A- okay, April, whatever it was. Whenever the press release came out, of course, there was the issue of getting it reimbursed. But once we started finding out in Massachusetts, which is a pretty liberal state for reimbursement, liberal about other things as well. But as soon as we started getting it reimbursed, I was using it. I'll ask Alan the same question. Uh, <laughs> I don't think there's any doubt what my answers are going to be, right? Well, I think it's important because as I've been talking to community-based oncologists over the year, of course, the reimbursement issue with this and breast were out on the table. But even beyond that, you know, it takes a while for people really to sort through data. I think one of the questions is, is this really a palpably increased benefit that these patients are receiving clinically? So formally, the answer is yes and yes. And 
it's interesting because we, Tom and I, of course, have been at various meetings together, and there are other so-called thought leader colleagues who don't necessarily have the same thoughts. Some of the questions have been raised, well, it's only one randomized phase three study, and we're waiting for a second. That's fair. And what I usually reply to those folks is, is anybody using Tarsiva? There's only one randomized phase three study for Tarsiva, and everybody's pretty much jumped on that one. So I think that the concept of having just one is it's nice if you can have more, but I personally wouldn't want to put a family member on another study with a control arm without bevacizumab at this point. The toxicity is there. There is more toxicity with bevacizumab than with just chemotherapy alone. But I think it's clinically acceptable given the benefit and survival. I think that as far as continuing the therapy, et cetera, I think that that's based on the data that we have available now is as it's designed. Dr. Sabbath? We spend a lot of time talking about the people that we treat that respond and how we're going to maintain them, this, that, and the other. That's sort of a very practical question. What about the other 60 or 70 percent that we treat with carbotaxavastin that in our follow-up, they've progressed. Now, where do you go? They've failed. Now, with their next line of treatment, are you going to give them BEV? Are you going to add erlotinib to the BEV? Are you going to add another chemotherapy? Do you stop altogether? Do you wait for them to be symptomatic? You know, I like the intellectual discussion of how we deal with our successes. How do we deal with our failures? Well, I think if they failed, if they progressed during chemotherapy and bevacizumab, I stop all treatment and move on to something else. What I've tended to do in folks using sort of a baseball analogy, since I'm a huge baseball fan, is if you've had someone who has grown through chemotherapy, just like the guy who has hit your fastball, it's time to switch and do a little change of pace. So for those in the second line, I'm very likely to give erlotinib as a second line if they've actually grown through chemotherapy. We know that folks who grow through chemotherapy in the frontline setting don't do well with any chemotherapy in the second line setting. The chance of responding is less than 5% for the most part in all the randomized phase three studies. So I tend to use the TK inhibitor in that setting, such as erlotinib. I want to ask Tom, when you start a patient on chemo, Avastin right now in the first-line metastatic setting, what do you tell them about the risks, specifically in terms of numbers? What do you tell them about thoracic hemorrhage, or do you bring that up? I do. So with Avastin, I will quote that there's an increased risk of dying from the chemotherapy. I tell them you take your risk of dying from the chemotherapy from about 1% to about somewhere between 3 to 4%, but that I emphasize that the overall risk of dying from disease will be reduced. And so in the end, the chance of living longer will be higher on chemotherapy with Avastin than it wouldn't be. We talk about hemoptysis and the fact that it's rare but can still happen. And we also talk about stroke and other thromboembolic phenomena, which even though they didn't pan out as being seen in Allen's study, when you look at the colorectal experience with Avastin, I think we're all pretty confident that Avastin is associated with a real but small increase in thromboembolic phenomena, which in lung cancer patients is not trivial. So, but I think, again, in the end, what drives our enthusiasm for Avastin is the fact that in a stage four trial, this had a substantial and clinically meaningful prolongation of survival, which is why I think all of us here would endorse using it in this setting. I just think you have to inform your patient as best you can in terms of what the risks are. But in the end, I think that most patients will think it's worth it. Alan, can you review specifically the entry criteria for the trial and the recent updated data that you presented on the thoracic hemorrhage in terms of the characteristics of those patients? 
the entry criteria were for non-squamous cell patients, no brain mets, and they were screened either with CTs or MRIs before going on, no history of hemoptysis greater than a half teaspoon, no active anticoagulation, and then they also, it was amended in the middle, no acute thrombotic event within, I think, six months of treatment. So those were the principal entry criteria. The incidence of grade three plus pulmonary hemorrhage was roughly about 2%. I think it was 2.1%. Grade three plus. There were five patients who died from pulmonary hemorrhage out of 420 patients on the bevacizumab arm. So that 1% is actually lower than what was seen on the phase two study in the non-squames, where it was two out of 53 patients. Also of note, of the five patients who died from pulmonary hemorrhage on the study, one patient actually had hemoptysis going into the study. Retrospection to have been put on study. A second one had scant hemoptysis after the first cycle and then developed massive hemoptysis on the second cycle when they continued treating them. So really only three patients died out of 420 patients if you utilized the strict ECOG criteria. So real, but actually if you looked at the old literature, you would have thought, hey, that's better than what we'd anticipate. But it was still greater than that seen on the chemo alone arm. So we attempted to see if there was a way to even better define the group of patients. As you know, as I mentioned in the ECOG study, we had no restrictions based on size or location of the tumor. Every subsequent study that's been done now with an anti-angiogenic agent has included some form of that, principally because people are assuming that it logically would make sense, but it's never been shown. So we went back and looked at lumping the patient data sets for the phase two study and the ECOG study to see whether we could find any baseline prognostic factors that would help us, and if there were any radiologic factors during treatment that would help. Not surprisingly, with a small number of patients that had grade three plus bleeds, nothing was statistically significant. There were trends that emerged that thought of interest, a baseline cavitation might be of increased risk. Baseline hemoptysis, again, re-entered the picture. But size, and we looked at three centimeters or greater, did not. Cavitation after treatment did not seem to. Again, small numbers. I really think our study doesn't really help all that much. It's like 22 patients, right? Correct, who had the grade three plus. In histology, we even looked at the NOS. Some people have suggested that maybe NOS is... Were these people responding? Some were responding. In fact, I think the majority were, but you couldn't evaluate all of them. Not all of them were evaluated after treatment. It's been thought that perhaps this is some manifestation of response. Do you believe that? My bias is that, particularly for the squames and whatnot, that it may well be a manifestation of a brisk response to treatment and that cavitation ultimately results, you know, abnormal vasculature, the fragile vessels within the tumor, and they bleed. And I'm not so sure that location, we looked at location next to blood vessels, We looked at location next to bronchi. None of those came out, which may or may not be that it's a fact. It's maybe we just didn't have enough patients. So my view is I'm not utilizing size or location in evaluating patients for this treatment. Dr. Deutsch? So if you have the patient on Avastin, the patient develops DVT or PE, and then subsequently has to be anticoagulated, do you stop their Avastin? We have, yes which is different than the colon cancer right now, if I understand correctly. There are ongoing studies that are going to look at 
the previously treated brain meds, which I think is an important issue. Right now, those folks are not eligible for 4599. I personally think we'll be able to treat those. Don't have any data yet. We're going to look at those studies. And I think the studies are including folks with anticoagulation as well to help address that question. I also think that those folks will be subsequently allowed that there won't be enhanced toxicity. I think if you're going to bleed, you're going to bleed. And it's not because your INR is a little bit longer, I think. In fact, there's my colon rectal colleagues tell me they think actually should be given with anticoagulation, that you'll reduce your thrombotic problems from Avastin if you use low molecular weight heparin in that setting. But right now, I agree with Alan. I don't use it. When I have to switch people, if they develop a PE on treatment, I stop Avastin. We talk about evidence-based medicine and how we're going to apply it. And there are a lot of people who don't fit the criteria for this trial. And I'm curious, in a non-protocol setting, judgment, we don't have the data, it's just gut feeling you have a patient in front of you, how much, Tom, you're willing to bend the rules a little bit. And I'll start out with a resected brain mat. I will not bend the rules. I have respect for this drug. This is a highly active drug, but it's also a potentially toxic drug. I have not bent the rules yet in my practice on somebody in terms of deviating from 4599 exclusion criteria. So if the patient has a resected brain met, now I agree with Alan. I think the trials will show it's safe, but up till now, I have not bent the rules in that respect. I just don't feel comfortable with that. Big proximal tumor. That wasn't part of your entry criteria, but a lot of people get nervous with big proximal tumors. Again, histology. We had a case just like this last week where our whole team looked at it. We were all nervous, but it was clearly an adenocarcinoma. And I think one of the comments I like was the concept of it's histology, not geography. To the best of our ability to tell, histology tends to drive the adverse events in this setting. And the other issue is what's a central tumor, what's not a central tumor? Practically everything in lung cancer has either a central component or a central lymph node that's involved that you're going to be treating. So I would, now, Neil, if it was a cavitating, large central mass, might I pause? I think I probably would. But short of that, I wouldn't. A younger patient who is previously in perfectly good health with normal function, who now is PS2 because of rapidly progressive tumor symptoms, Alan would not have been eligible for the trial, correct? Correct. Would you use BevTom in that situation? That comes down to the concept of performance status creep, okay? And if I could talk myself into the fact that the performance status was really a one, I would do it. If the person had a PS that I really thought was two, and if it was a young person who I really thought had a PS of two, I probably would hold off at this point. Dr. Taylor? Maybe we can ask it again, too. Just two things about Avastin, since you guys know a lot about it. One, I don't know what tumor type, but there's this reversible leukoencephalopathy that we now have to tell everybody about. Is that real? Is that something that we just noticed? Do you think it's going to develop into something that we have to worry about, or is this just a fluke? And then the second question I've heard, I think from some of Dr. Love's interviews, about the hypertension that maybe it's part of the reason it works, tumor pressure, I don't know what, mild increases, should we be managing it or should we let it be because it might make, it's not dangerous probably, you know, blood pressure 160 over 90 in the setting, should we let it be because it might actually be helping the effect of the chemo? I don't think the hypertension helps the treatment. Okay. I think it's a side effect of the treatment and should be treated okay. as you would hypertension. The issue of the leukoencephalopathy, I don't have a whole lot of experience with that. We didn't see it in our, saw the same reports that you did. Could it potentially go the same way of the interstitial lung disease right. did That's with the EGFR and right. what was the corneal abrasions that turned out to be an eyebrow that was growing too long with the EGFR TK inhibitors? I don't know whether it's too true unrelated or not, but it is something that obviously you have to think about now or should think about. John Marshall in our colorectal program raised the question of is hypertension the rash of bevacizumab? Do people get hypertension and have better tumor response? Do we know anything about that no. in, in lung cancer? No. Any speculations? 
What no. do you think, Tom? <laughs> I have no idea. The comment on treating hypertension is I generally will let someone float up to moderate hypertension without treating it. But the reason being, I never like, I always tell my fellows, I never like to start treating hypertension in the setting of giving chemotherapy because then they go home, they get nauseous, they start vomiting, they're hypovolemic, and you've given them tons of lisinopril, and they've got a pressure of 90 over 60. So... I don't usually treat unless the diastolic gets above 100. So I'm really, you know, I mean, whereas internists will treat diastolics above 90 or 85 or whatever it is now, but I usually let the diastolic float up to 100 before I get, as you point out, too bent out of shape about it. Dr. Reeves? The Avastin dosing, is there any thought about seeking a lower dose, Y5 versus 10? Is there any way to monitor Avastin levels so maybe we can do tailoring of dosing in the future and not be so costly? our patients? There is thoughts about it. There's no way to know right now. Do remember that the randomized phase two study, there was a seven and a half milligram per kilogram every three week arm that did less well than the 15 milligram per kilogram arm, albeit 99 patient randomized phase two study. There's an ongoing Roche study that's sponsored on the other side of the Atlantic that has cisplatin gemcitabine also with three arms, two doses of the bevacizumab that I think was supposed to merge into just the one arm of the Vastin after a couple hundred patients or so. And that may help us a bit more as well. So at that point, that's as much as we know. And so based on that, I'm still comfortable with the more expensive but proven 15 makes per kg every three weeks.